Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Emma Ashford, a research fellow in foreign policy at Cato. And I'm Trevor Thrall, a senior fellow here at Cato. Today, we're actually joined by Cato's own Carolyn Dormany, a policy analyst in our defense and foreign policy department, whose work focuses on the global arms trade and the defense budget. She and Trevor recently co-authored a report on U.S. arms sales. So it's been a really interesting time for the arms trade. The United States has, for for many years, and and I think a lot of people don't know this, been the biggest global supplier of weapons and military equipment to countries around the globe. But with recent arms sales to Saudi Arabia, reports that President Trump will ease restrictions on these sales um, and encourage U.S. diplomats and military officials to actively promote the sale of U.S. weapons abroad, um, it's a really fascinating time to look at this topic. Um, So we'll be talking today about this uh, topic and seeking to answer the question, do arms sales to friendly countries help or hurt U.S. foreign policy goals? Carolyn, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. As always, we'll actually start today with our discussion of the news. Um, And it's another week, another opportunity for Trump to saber rattle on Twitter. Uh, This week, the president is tweeting angrily at Syria and at Russia. He's promising missile strikes in response to another Assad regime chemical weapons attack. What's going on here? I mean, I think you've got a classic case of two heads of state that care a lot about signaling. Both Trump and Putin care a lot about their public personas. And so he really needed, Trump really needed to take a very strong stance. And his favorite platform to do that is Twitter, basically. And so we're going to have to see what the administration ends up formulating and what they end up coming out with, because it's not just what he thinks. It's also going to be what his advisors come up with. Yeah, I, I think to to my mind, uh, another missile strike of some sort is seems likely, but you know I think it will have about as much impact as his Twitter strike had, um, if if I can coin a phrase there. Um, but you know I, I think Trump has talked himself into that corner, as you said, Carolina. He's he's a big signaler. He did it once, and even though he got to uh, ignore a bunch of other uses of chemical weapons, once once another big use, you know finds itself in the news, I think Trump's basically got to do something, at least in his own mind. This is the problem that a lot of us pointed out back in, it was almost a year ago, last April, when Trump actually did that missile strike, is that once he'd done it, his his credibility was on the line, as much as I hate using that term. And it's funny that people consistently point out sort of that Obama lost American credibility by not intervening in Syria. And they're not really pointing out that Trump actually took this action and now Assad has turned around and used chemical weapons again. So there's a really interesting dynamic here where Trump basically has to escalate or at looks like he backed down. Yeah, no, and and I think, you know, all the while I think he knows because he's, you know, a week beforehand, not even a week beforehand saying let's we're going to be out very soon. I mean, he knows there's no reason for us to be there anymore. He doesn't want to be there. I think actually the last thing he wants to do is bother about what Assad's doing, but he he is going to be stuck. Yeah, I think it's really going to come down to what his advisors end up suggesting because he is surrounded by very hawkish people. I mean, it is what John Bolton's first week in office. Um, So we're going to have to see what the rest of the people in the room end up suggesting. 
Yeah, my favorite anecdote about John Bolton's first day is a reporter uh, asked him, you know, how how was your first day at the National Security Council? And he said, well, how bad could it get? (laughs) Uh, Which uh, might be the most terrifying thing ever to hear from John Bolton. But uh, let's move on then, I guess, and we'll talk about the Russia part of the equation, not Russia in Syria so much, but the fact that the US this week, pretty much without warning, levied a bunch of new sanctions on a variety of Russian individuals, a variety of Russian firms. Um, So we seem to be taking another step here to distance the president from his original willingness to sort of deal with Russia, see Russia as an ally. This is a pretty interesting development, I think. And I I do think that that's also a factor of the people that he surrounded himself by, because during the campaign, he was pretty vocal that he wants a better relationship with Russia. And for Putin's part, he's not playing the role that Trump would have him play. He's being more combative. And I don't think that the president really had a game plan for that eventuality. He thought that he was going to have, you know, a a willing partner. Um, But that's not just it's just not what's played out. Yeah, I, I agree. That's that's a really good point, and it, you know it's hard to hard to play that game if you don't have the other person um, playing along with you. But the other thing I'm starting to wonder is the all the uh, Mueller stuff. The heat is starting to rise on many fronts, and I just wonder if Trump's if the timing isn't a little suspicious in that um, it's useful for Trump from a PR perspective to look tough on Russia. So that clearly there could be no collusion. Look how tough I'm being. I mean, I I feel comfortable guaranteeing you that he will, re, um, you know, rely on these sanctions to argue that it could there couldn't be any collusion. I I I will bet a hundred dollars right now on that. You know, it's funny. There's been a lot of talk about diversionary war in the context of, of Syria. And that's, a, to be honest, been a largely debunked hypothesis that academics have pretty much shown diversionary war isn't really a thing. Um, but in the case of the Russia sanctions, diversionary tactics actually seem to make sense. Um, and Trump, this isn't the first time he's been harder on Russia. We have sanctions dating back to sort of Congress passing them last year. We have Trump authorizing lethal weaponry to Ukraine, which was something Obama never agreed to do. Um, And so he actually has taken a much more mainstream Republican approach to Russia, even if his his sort of talking about it is a little different. Yeah. And I think as Carolyn mentioned on the other news tidbit. I mean, it's about who's in the room. Uh, There's really nobody in any room in D.C. who wants to take it easy on Russia unless it's a room full of only Trump family members, apparently. So, I mean, I think the advice he's probably been getting nonstop since getting to D.C. is you got to be tougher on the Russians. So, But it is interesting because if you look at some of his tweets, he'll he'll have this kind of bombastic rhetoric towards Russia and then write a throwaway tweet at the end saying, like, this is not actually what I want. I would I would love to have better relationships with Russia, but that's just not possible. And it's kind of become his go-to line anytime policy doesn't go his way. It's like, this isn't what I want, but the Democrats have made it impossible. You know, I would I would love to build a wall for you, but it's just not feasible. Perhaps we should uh, devote a future episode to Trump contradicting himself on foreign policy issues because there's easily enough to fill half an hour there. Um, But let's talk quickly about our last news bit. Um, And again, we're back to trade, which, you know, foreign policy related issue at least. Um, And Trump appears to have basically started a trade war with China. Um, It has fizzled a little after the Chinese apparently made some concessions or at least looked like they might be going to make some concessions um, on some various topics. But Trump does continue to agitate against China. He continues to agitate against countries that are a lot more friendly to us. And perhaps the most bizarre thing is uh, just this last week, he says that he will not approve 
the U.S.-South Korea trade agreement, the Chorus trade agreement, until he negotiates with North Korea and that goes well. The logic is a little unclear to me. Any ideas? I really don't know. It's strange to me. I mean, obviously, I don't focus on trade issues in this sector, but, you know, it's very worrying how much free trade has really fallen by the wayside and and how there aren't as many champions as there used to be. Now there's this focus on fair trade. And it's just kind of, it gets away from the core tenets of, of that field almost because there are so many benefits to free trade. And yet, all we hear about these days are tariffs. Yeah. I, you know, the Korean thing, is that Trump trying to hold South Korea's feet to the fire in any upcoming negotiations? I mean, the, the sort of threat there being if you guys aren't tough enough on North Korea, if you're too friendly, then we're going to pull out. You know, but that's such a strange thing, though, because it's the South Koreans that have been pushing the whole negotiations from the start. And if you're saying that he's going to hold their feet to the fire over, well, we need to take military action, there's no way that a trade deal stacks up against the probable death of millions of Koreans in their calculus. So again, it just, I mean, is it possible that he doesn't know this is a trade agreement with only South Korea? It's possible. I mean, it it could also be him playing, him, him keeping all of his cards close to the chest. He loves doing that. With the omnibus that passed um, last month, he he reserved the right to veto until the last minute and kept teasing everyone of, you know, is this press is the press conference that I'm holding going to be that I'm I'm not going to sign the omnibus and we're going to have another government shutdown? I think it's just him keeping his veto power over everything. Yeah, I, I, I think you nailed it. Actually, now that I hear you say it, I, he loves to be the center. Of attention, he loves to be the center of the process, and I think, you know, I, he wants to take credit eventually at some point if he decides that it should happen, and it, it, that really smells exactly like what that is. Yeah, and it's not just just center of attention, but I think he has shown time and again that he has to have the last word, or he's going to pitch a fit in order to get it. And I think that might be what's factoring in here. Well, uh, I think that's another whole episode topic is Donald Trump's negotiating style. So we're, we're definitely making some progress here. Um, but let's move on. And eat, Carolyn, even though you work here at Cato, we all know you pretty well. I do want to ask you a surprise question of the okay. day. Um, <laughs> and so the question is, um, what is the, the book or class or article that first encouraged you to get really interested in international affairs and start working in this field? Oh, man. Um, I mean, to be honest, it wasn't it wasn't a book or a class. It was one specific teacher. Um, I was in AP U.S. history in high school, and I had this wonderful, wonderful teacher who kind of took me aside and was like, you know, you are really good at this. You should think about maybe pursuing it and and not just U.S. history, but you are really excellent at the parts of military history. And I can see you just kind of having a map in your mind and you're moving around all these little pieces. And I think you would be really good at it. And so I'm going to put you forward into all of these other AP classes and help encourage you. And she was one of my earliest mentors. um, And so I really credit my going into this field to her. That's awesome. That's a great answer. I think a lot of people have chosen a book so far, but I think that's a that's a great way to look at it. Yeah, absolutely. 
Okay, well, so let's then move on into the work that you actually do here at Cato. You, you guys focus on arms sales. So you and Trevor have both worked on this issue for quite a few months now. Um, but I think it really does surprise a lot of people when they learn that the US is such a big arms exporter that we control, I think, it's about a third of the global arms market. So let's start with some of the basics, if you guys could, could talk us through them. What kind of things is it that we're selling? Who are we selling them to? How much are we selling? Why does this matter? Exactly. Um, so our paper specifically looks at the period from 2002 to 2016. Um, and the U.S. sold almost $200 billion to 167 countries worldwide. Um, so that really covers everything from planes to ships to missiles to missile defense. Um, there are very few things that we don't export. And those things actually have congressional legislation behind them. So we don't export the F-22 in order to preserve our qualitative military edge. Um, we don't export some specific types of armed drones, although the, that legislation actually looks to be like it's relaxing. Um, but we really sell a, a wide variety of things. And it's um, it's not just what our military is selling and what the federal government clears. There's also a large variety of things that actually fall under the Commerce Department um, that used to be under the Department of Defense and Department of State, um, but are now under much more lax regulations under commerce. What kind of things are we talking about? Um, you get things like spare parts. You get Bullets. things... Yeah. You get the, the smaller articles, things like ammunition, like spare parts to keep things going, um, which is really interesting because one of the typical reasonings in this field is, oh, if, if a country is acting badly and we would like a, re a avenue to kind of punish them a little bit, but not in not in necessarily a terrifying way, um, we can just withhold spare parts and maintenance, and then they won't be able to have all of these things function. But if it's through commerce, then it's a much easier process to, to gain access to that. And it should be noted that um, the United States isn't just the lead arms exporter recently, but it's essentially always been true since Oh, at least World War II, uh, and at you know, I think at one point the United States was probably responsible for about half of global arms sales, and it's dipped. With globalization comes competition, and so we've dipped to about a third. Uh, but man, during the Cold War, you know, as part of the Cold War, the United States sold weapons. Um, if I can use the technical term, willy-nilly uh, to the Third World and and to Europe and elsewhere, um, in order to you know contained the Soviet Union. And the Soviets did likewise, often to some of the same countries, in fact, like Egypt and other sort of non-aligned countries in the Middle East. Yeah. So, I mean, so the other the other figure that you mentioned there that kind of surprised me is I think a lot of Americans assume that we're basically selling to our allies that are close allies or friendly countries and we're helping them with their military. But 167 countries doesn't sound like it excludes many countries. Who don't we sell to? Um, there are 16, I think 16 nations currently on banned export lists. Um, and let's see. China, Russia, yeah. Sudan is on the list right now. But it's but it's interesting because you get countries like the Democratic Republic of Congo is currently on the banned list. But we actually sold weapons to them only a few years before then putting them on the banned list. And so you you really see a problem in the risk assessment because a lot of the a lot of the problems that got them on the banned list would have already been evident even the few years before when we sold weapons to them. Like Yemen, 
for example, or, mm-hmm. you know, in Iran. Iran, before the revolution, we sold them everything. Yeah. And so that, you know. And they're still flying our planes. That's the problem is, is the service life of a lot of these weapons. It's not just uh, to solve an immediate problem. You have to worry about, you know, some of these systems have a 20-year, 30-year service life, even more if you've got life, in- life extension programs. So this is a pretty big decision. And you've alluded a couple of times to the approvals process. Um, so it's, it's mostly private companies that do these sales, as I understand it. But then the U.S. government also has to approve it. How does that work? So it it's all run through the government, but the government isn't seeing any monetary benefit from it. You know, we can't balance our budget because we sell more in weapons. Um, the U.S. government basically acts as a broker between a foreign government and, you know, a, you know, a business like Lockheed Martin. Um, and so the State Department would broker all of these agreements, but they also have to pass through the Department of Defense to pass security checks. When any of that happens, but you get you get very lax restrictions or, um, you know, kind of the stated guidance for this is uh, a lot of throwaway lines. Yeah, there's there's, you know, in 1976, the United States passed the Arms Export Control Act uh, in response to presidents selling weapons to country, uh, really Richard Nixon in, the, in this case, specifically selling weapons without telling Congress what he was doing. And there were some negative consequences here and there. And Congress is sort of as a response to presidential sort of excess during Vietnam more generally, um, you know, along with the War Powers Act and some other attempts to wrest some foreign policy control away from the White House. Uh, they required that uh, all arms sales, you know, over a certain size be approved um, you know, through a uh, a process through the State Department and Defense Department doing a risk assessment. And then with Congress having an ability at the last moment to, uh, once notified of a sale, they would have 30 days if they didn't want it to go through to block it. And one of the really interesting things that, you know, we discovered in doing this research is that Congress has never, ever blocked an arms sale. They've threatened, they've talked about it. Um, they may have, they may have um, changed the shape of a couple of them, uh, but they've never blocked one. That is fascinating. And so it, it does fit into the sort of broader pattern of congressional restrictions on the president's uh, military or foreign policy power. All of it passed pretty much during the Nixon administration and almost none of it is actually used today. Exactly right. Yeah. No, I mean, it, you know, the, the legislation says we're supposed to do a risk assessment to ensure that it furthers the national interest of the United States, doesn't you know, do damage to the regional balance of power, doesn't uh, encourage humanitarian, you know, uh, misdeeds and so on and so forth. And yet, as far as Caroline and I can tell from from our research, um, that almost no concern for those things goes into the risk assessment process. As you noted, we've sold weapons to 167 countries on the planet, uh, most of which just from the numbers, you know, aren't friendly, allied, stable places. So, um, you know, by definition, we're selling to a lot of risky customers. And it's actually very interesting because anytime Congress is notified of a sale, the public is also notified of a sale. It, that's public information. Um, and so if you read the press releases, they have all of this very specific language about this specific sale won't al- alter the balance of power. It won't have negative consequences. It won't have all of these things. But, you know, selling weapons kits to Saudi Arabia does change the balance of power because they're currently in a war against their neighbor, Yemen. And and that's a very real, very real time consequence um, that, you know, I think it's it's just kind of being swept under the rug in the current risk assessment. 
Well, I think that's a really good jumping off point for my next question, which is you guys talk in the report a little about some of these terrible examples of just how arms sales have gone so badly wrong. You want to share a couple of examples with us now? Um, absolutely. I think the one that people are going to be most familiar with is um, an episode of dispersion that happened when the U.S. sold what millions of dollars um, in weapons and and sent millions of dollars worth of aid to the Iraqi military. Um, and then they couldn't kind of protect their own stockpiles. And, and when confronted with ISIS, the Iraqi military kind of turned tail and ran and dropped everything they were holding. Um, and so it's it's been a really bad episode. I mean, in June 2014 alone, the UN Security Council estimated that ISIS captured vehicles, weapons, and ammunition sufficient to arm and equip more than three Iraqi military divisions. That's how much was left on the ground, on the battlefield. Um, and so that's that's because from 2003 to 2007, not just the U.S., but all of the coalition members transferred you know, millions of dollars worth of infantry weapons and all of the ammunition necessary to, like, keep those guns in battle. And, you know, we knew that was going to be a problem. The Iraqi military was corrupt. It was poorly structured and it was badly disciplined. Um, it was very foreseeable eventuality. And yet it still happened. And now we've got American troops fighting in these areas against our own weapons that we sent over as aid. Exactly. And, you know, to, so it's it's interesting because there's sort of these two two flavors of, of those negative consequences, the ones that you might have fairly easily foreseen. And, you know, maybe you discounted for some reason or maybe you just said, OK, it's a risk, but it's a risk we're going to take because we have a bigger issue we need to deal with and you hope for the best. And, you know, as our research shows that the best doesn't always or maybe often happen. But then there's another class of, of negative consequences, which are the ones that you just didn't foresee at all, but then happened anyway. And so one there that I think, again, some people would know, depending on how old they are, is uh, when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, we sold Stinger, you know, shoulder-launched uh, missiles to the, um, or sold, gave, uh, really, to the Mujahideen in Afghanistan uh, to shoot down Soviet helicopters and such. Um, and what happened to the Mujahideen eventually? Well, they became Al-Qaeda. And the, they also, not only did they have them for their own use, but they sold them to other people with, you know, anti-American interests. Um, so, you know, and you would say, well, you know, we, we, you had to sort of, you know, fight off the Soviets and so on and so forth. But the very fact to me that you can't predict where this stuff is going to end up, I mean, it, it shows you how little ability you have to predict the future. And when you're selling deadly weapons, it really matters that you can't predict what's going to happen to them. That's a, that's a big problem. So you guys are definitely pretty down on arms sales. But let me take the other side for a minute here and let me just sort of take the Donald Trump argument, right? The president has argued that arms sales create jobs, they boost the U.S. economy, that this is really good for us. Um, some people argue a little more subtly that, well, if the U.S. doesn't sell weapons to these countries, other countries will just step in and do so. Um, so still others argue that if uh, the U.S. doesn't sell weapons to our allies or other countries, we'll be more likely to have to step in and defend them in some future war. So there's all of these arguments for arms sales. Um, do you think that they are not good arguments? I think that some of these arguments are, are pretty bad. And then some of these just don't have the data to support them. Um, and so 
with the economic side of this, you know, I truly, truly believe, and I think Trevor does as well, that economics should not be, you know, it would be a very low level profit margin for these defense contracting companies. Um, And it shouldn't dictate our foreign policy, essentially. You know, I think national security concerns come over the profit margins of Lockheed Martin. That That's just kind of, it should be the other way around. And, and economics is definitely a part of this equation, but I think it is overvalued in the current discussion. Um, I think some of the other arguments, like your burden sharing, basically, um, argument is very, very interesting, but the current data on this is very lax. Um, so you get lots of scholars that are interested in testing, you know, when we sell arms for leverage, when we sell arms for things like access to military bases, you know, is that successful? Is it unsuccessful? Well, a lot of times for military bases, it's, it's successful, but we could be doing that through other means. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the economic argument, um, you know, I, I won't claim there isn't ever any benefits, although I think even some of our opponents on the arms sales question have started coming around as more research gets done that shows that, um, you know, the, the arms industry depends on a vast amount of state funding. If without a $700 billion military budget every year, there is a much smaller American defense industry. And so the ideal case for the United States, from my standpoint, I think from most libertarian standpoint, would be we have a much smaller defense budget, uh, a much smaller defense industry. And as a result, we would be doing far fewer arms sales. So I think, you know, the idea that we should somehow ramp up arms sales because that's such a great path for our economy. I mean, that's a very backwards kind of an argument. Um, And then... But on the other hand, there are sometimes, under some conditions, I think, reasons why you would want to conduct arms sales. So, for example, during World War II, uh, your allies desperately need arms uh, in order to defeat your common enemies. Absolutely, for sure. Um, but then I think many of the conditions uh, that would make arms sales a reasonable goal for the United States, I don't think those hold very often anymore. So, for example, people say, well, we should sell weapons to uh, Taiwan in order to keep China from invading Taiwan. Um, but I think if the way I look at it anyway is the situation between the United States and China is made much more tense by the fact that we support Taiwan. Uh, I'm all for Taiwan defending itself, but I would be a lot more comfortable, and I think U.S.-Chinese relationship would be much stronger if someone else sold Taiwan weapons. Yes, someone else will sell Taiwan weapons if we don't, and I think that would actually be much better. Um, so, you know, or you take the example of Middle Eastern, uh, you know, issues between Israel and its neighbors. If the United States wasn't selling weapons to one side in the debate, um, we would be a much more flexible uh, and neutral seeming moderator. I think our diplomatic leverage would actually increase in many of these cases. So I think some of the benefits that people claim for arms sales are, are as Caroline said before, it, arms are not the only way to get influence. So arms could sometimes be useful. And, and since you mentioned lead, Lisa, I feel like this is an opportunity for me to throw in my favorite arms sales anecdote, which is that the Russian word for a jeep, a military jeep, thanks to lead lease, it is vilis as in Willis Jeeps of Toledo, Ohio. That's actually in the Russian language now, thanks to arms sales historically. Good for something, apparently. Evidently. 
Yes. So obviously the U.S. isn't going to give up arms sales soon. We're, we're all pretty much agreed on that. Um, but you and your paper, you propose a way that policymakers could at least sort of rank states based on some risk factors um, and perhaps avoid the worst cases where arms sales go so badly wrong. How feasible is that kind of picking your, your targets approach? I think it's pretty feasible just because of the way that the process is currently structured arm sales are evaluated on a case-by-case basis. And so it's very easy to pull up our risk assessment and say, you know, okay, we're thinking about selling weapons to Saudi Arabia. Maybe in in discussions, we should look at, you know, what is the fragility of that state? What is the terrorism index? Like what is what are some of these factors that go into riskiness um, and evaluate that along with the decision? I think it's Um, entirely feasible to take some of these smaller steps and move in the right direction. Yeah. So, for example, we we recommend, uh, you know, we use, we build this risk index uh, using uh, several different factors. uh, As Caroline mentioned, the the fragile state index, because it's not a good idea to sell to a state so fragile that it can't keep track or keep a hold, as in the case of Iraq uh, or Afghanistan, for example, Libya, all these places, Yemen. We sold weapons to Yemen before the Civil War. Guess where those are being used? Uh, so fragile state index, the a human rights and freedom index, because uh, you give weapons to people like the Saudis or others, um, the, the chances of them getting used against their own people are actually fairly high. So for instance, in the war on terror, the United States has sold weapons to many countries under the rubric of the war on terrorism, but the people who are at risk for those getting used against them are are their own folks. Um, you know, there's also evidence now that uh, military assistance can lead to a higher rate of military coups. So again, if you've sold weapons to places that have fragile systems, um, you know, you the likelihood of a coup and, and other stuff. And so, and as Carolyn mentioned, the terrorism index. So there are a whole bunch of these indices. And, and our our thought was fairly simple, but just look, if, if a state scores in the worst sort of bucket on any of those indices, they should be on a red flag list and a no-sell list because they're just too high a risk for really obvious negative consequences. And so who does this leave, you know, that you could sell to? And, and it would be customers that you would imagine, Norway, Finland, Sweden, places that are stable, democratic, uh, peaceful, not in a conflict at the moment. I mean, believe it or not, the United States ha- over the last, say, 40 years has probably sold weapons to um, you know, as many as 90% of all countries engaged in a conflict. And that just is pouring gas on the fire. Now, you may say, well, I wanted them to win. But – and again, that's fine if that's your short-term thinking. Oh, but you, but our feeling is that we don't see any evidence of any long-term consideration being being had ever in this process. And so you need to balance this. So it's kind of like we're often selling to both sides too. Oh, absolutely. And that, and that really undercuts our ability to then solve that conflict diplomatically. How, how can you get two sides to a table if you're arming one or worst case scenario, you're arming both sides against each other? How can you then broker any sort of peace agreement because you have – for lack of a better word, you have no credibility with those actors. Yeah. And it's important to remember that the other, other than, than Russia and China, the other major global arms exporters are, in fact, our allies. So, you know, Sweden, Switzerland, Germany, uh, Britain, Italy, the UK. Uh, and so in cases where we want to work with our allies in concert, um, we could, if we're willing to forego arms sales, we can probably convince them to do so as well. And, you know, another example of, of the problems this has caused would be the, the first Gulf War, when the United States invades, uh, you know, 
sort of takes care of um, Iraq, and but in the process of the UN inspections afterwards, realizes just how close they were to a nuclear weapons capability, but who sold them all the stuff that they were using? The Germans, the United States, other Europeans. And that's the kind of thing that if we work together with our allies to stop the arms trade, we, we won't be selling to both sides in conflicts and we'll have much more diplomatic leverage. And it's actually interesting because some of these European countries are taking firmer steps to restrict their arms trade. Um, the EU has put forth a lot of legislation calling for a ban, first of all, to Saudi Arabia while they're currently beating up Yemen um, and looking at different, you know, a country by country basis. I think it is Sweden yep. that's proposed um, to have a democracy contingency. Like they will only sell weapons to other democracies because they believe in it. And so there, there is a lot of good work being done on arms control in, in the European realm. Well, you've certainly given us all a lot to think about, um, but that's all we have time for for today. So thank you, Carolyn, for joining us. Um, and thanks to everyone at home for listening. If you want to continue this conversation, you could find us on Twitter. Uh, the Twitter uh, handle is at CatoFP. Um, and we'd like to thank our producer, Jeff Geld. If you enjoyed this episode or our other episodes, just uh, give us a good review on iTunes or Google Play, and we'd be very grateful. Thanks. <laughs>